0: back to Sailor's Disgrace. I'd like to begin this episode with a quote from Sylvia Plath, by her poem Ariel. The quote is, I am terrified by this dark thing that sleeps in me. All day I feel it's soft, feathery turnings, it's malignity. This was a very dark period of my life. After I came out to Shannon, and the investigation started, and I was put on medication, I was in a hole. I finally was experiencing the trauma after 12 years, and it impacted me every single day. As I mentioned previously, I was still able to function at work. I was still able to do do my job. But I was very distracted. I was scared constantly. I was nervous. I was afraid that people might find out about it. I was afraid of retribution. And I always turn to those closest to me, and the person that's always been closest to me is my sister. And uh, she lives in Seattle at the time, and she still does. So I took her, I went to see her with my son I flew up to Seattle, and I think I spent about a week there just to calm down, and that's when I started my medication, and I I was at a complete loss, and she comforted me, and I'm forever grateful for that, for her and her partner Kara, for taking care of me, but at the same time, it also fed into my trauma, and it fed into the complex side of my PTSD, I don't want to go into all the details of what I learned, but I will say that our family history came up, and there were traumas that I never dealt with as a child from the time of my parents' divorce that directly affected her. And suffice it to say that there was a lot of family shame and guilt, and things were hidden from me and my brothers and the rest of my family. Lies were told and the truth was never exposed to protect us at least that's what the family thought it was best to protect the young boys from what had happened and it destroyed me not to know of what happened I always had a suspicion of that that trauma of what had happened but to find out the details and the extent of it It really laid out a foundation of why I was the way I was, why I treated people the way I treated them, why I did not like to speak out about how I felt, how I was very comfortable with being quiet, with remaining quiet and not sharing my emotions, not sharing anything. And I learned how to bottle up all my fears and troubles from the time I was five years old, six years old, because of what had happened and it directly correlated with my trauma with my rape and the case of me remaining silent for 12 years until I finally exploded and had a meltdown and I was right in the middle of that dealing with my own personal trauma and then getting all the details of the family trauma and the family history I'm glad I learned and I'm glad I talked to my sister about it I still am. I'm very glad. And it's it was a lot to take in at one time. And sometimes it still is. And I've dealt with those repercussions since 2016 and to a point now where I finally put those relationships aside that were toxic, that did not help me and also did not help my family, did not help my son. I was finally able after years, and we'll get to that point in a future podcast, but I was able to put that in its proper place. But in 2016, it was right in my face. It was right there with my rape. And then all of a sudden, the truth behind my family dysfunction, also right there in my face. And I was a mess. You know, I, I'm so glad I went to see her and her partner. And I had so much fun with my son. And we explored Seattle, went to a baseball game. And yeah, I had had the best time ever. Uh, well, not best time ever, but best time I could. And I needed that that break from from Texas for a little bit. But I went back to Texas and continued to work. And at the same time I was working, CJIS, which is the Coast Guard Investigation Services, was working on my case. And I, I believe that they worked it to the best of their abilities, given what they had, what I gave them, I, I didn't give them much to operate on. It was very um, sparse. The evidence, all they had, was the name of the coast guard perpetrator, a rough estimate of when it was. So they started their investigation, and they, they kept me in the loop for the most part. You know, they they spoke with me and told me how things were progressing, and they interviewed some of my friends that I names that I gave them, um, and they interviewed the perpetrator. Uh, And at first, I was hopeful that something might come from that. The perpetrator was still active duty. um, And they said at first he was willing to give an interview and to speak with them. But then he was, he either found a lawyer or was given a lawyer, I'm not sure which one. And he also said that he would take a polygraph test. Uh, But as soon as he lawyered up, that went out the window. He was, he denied giving a polygraph test and he denied any involvement or wrongdoing and practically we hit a brick wall with the investigation at that point and out of that desperation i believe from the cgis agents and mind you i'd started therapy at the same time i was seeing a therapist and again i was continuing the medication i was working through some of this and cgis approached me and asked if I could make a phone call to him and actually speak to him on the phone while they recorded it, and I did not know how to respond to that at first. I felt helpless and scared, of course, so I spoke to my therapist about it, and I spoke to my lawyer, the Coast Guard-appointed lawyer, and they both said the same thing, that ultimately it was up to me. My lawyer said, nothing. most likely nothing will come from this. It's an unusual tactic, but if you want to do this, by all means, go ahead. And my therapist thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> they, she said, why the hell would they want you to speak to this guy? But I had this feeling of, I need to see this come to a conclusion, and I need to get through this. And I wanted to have it done now. You know, I wanted it to be done and it's still one of the most surreal moments of my life. I remember the day specifically. It was January 20th, 2017. And I was at the H- Sector houston Galveston building where I worked, and the first floor is where the EGIS office is. I worked on the third floor. So I went down to their office and they set up the phones and hit record. And at first he did not pick up, so he called his unit and they told us that, uh, he was not there that day that he was on, on leave or at home. So we tried calling him again on his personal phone. And on the second phone call, he picked up and I can't remember exactly what I said, but so he just prompted me to say, you know, I, I remember this happening to me. I know you were there. I just want to see if you remember anything. And they also wanted me to kind of give a sob story like i'm not sleeping i'm not eating and i'm under a lot of stress and any anything you could say might help me and i um, i I think i said that to the most part and what struck me was how cold he was how he he didn't apologize he didn't say i'm wow i'm so sorry this happened to you and and he didn't even deny anything you know I just remember him saying that, you know, I can't really talk right now and this, you know, I have to go back to work and basically hung up on me at that point. But I knew he wasn't at work because we called his unit and they said that he was off that day. He wasn't there, he was at home. So he lied to me to get out of the phone conversation. And I felt completely deflated at that point. I felt like there's nothing else I can do. It's my word versus his, and I don't remember the other two people, and what if he's done this to other people? What if the other two Navy personnel, what if, how many people did they do this to, and are are they still doing it after 12 years, and are they in jail? Are they, are they still in the Navy? Are they, you know, I all these thoughts in my head, and I felt like I could do nothing about it. I could do nothing about my situation. I could do nothing to help others. I could do nothing to bring justice to what had happened to me and potentially other people. So I had this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt, and I was so scared at that point. And the CEDIS agents dismissed me after that, and I remember going upstairs back to the office, and everyone was watching TV. That's how I remember the day. And I don't want to get political or anything, but that was the day that Trump was inaugurated in 2020. That's how I remember the day. Or, um, I'm sorry, 2017. That's the same day. And I go upstairs, and everyone's watching that on TV, and I just had a conversation with my rapist on the phone, and I'm watching this on television, and it's so surreal. And everything was scary at that point for me. And it got even worse, I think, after that phone call because then my big concern too, and I voiced this concern to CJIS and I voiced this concern to my lawyer and was that I knew the case was over, that there was nothing that they could charge him with. He had a lawyer. He was not going to take a polygraph test. He was not admitting any guilt or involvement whatsoever. And there was no evidence But then my fear was, what if I see him again? And it's a small Coast Guard. I run into people constantly throughout my career, either at training or they show up to my unit or I show up to their unit. And we always bump into each other in one way or another. And it was so hard for me to even listen to his voice on the phone that the idea of me seeing him in an elevator in Yorktown or, or... you know, Petaluma or if I have to go visit a cutter and he's there or or whatever, that I wouldn't know how to handle myself, that I was afraid of what might happen, that I might have a meltdown and snap or or who knows. And (laughs) they didn't have a good answer for me. The only thing I really got was, this is kind of a weird situation. We're not used to this. You know, some, they've, they've dealt with situations where they've PCS, they've moved someone from a unit because of an, an accusation or an assault or harassment um, and it's an immediate thing when they're stationed together but not of long term hey this guy's going to make a career at the Coast Guard the other one probably is too at this point they both have more than 10 years in how do we ensure that they're not going to at least get stationed together we can't control an accidental meeting such as you know, at a training center or something like that but how can we ensure that they're never going to be stationed together you know, even on this, I didn't want to be in the same state, the same district, anything. I didn't want to have any possible connection. And luckily we have different positions in the Coast Guard, different jobs, but even still there's a potential I could be at the same unit with this person. And they didn't have a way with that. And I I felt like that was strange that out out of all the cases that the Coast Guard has dealt with, that there's always had immediate separation of people and prosecution investigation and sometimes the investigations run dry and there's no discharge or, or of the the accused and you know the person stays in the coast guard and the accuses or the, the victim's still in the coast guard so what happens then you know what what is the long-term plan for a victim's rights for a survivor you know i i thought that was a poor um Just wouldn't work, you know, for me. And I never got an answer, even to this day. Uh, Maybe it's just luck that I haven't received orders with this person. But it's it's kind of shocking to think of that, you know. And I and I recently received orders to a new unit, and that's one of the things I checked was if that person was in the same area, you know. And luckily, they're not right now. But I about once a year or so, I'll still check. I mean, we can check people's names and look up their address where they are if they're still in the service. And I check once in a while just to see where this person's stationed, just so I know not to go there <laughs> or stay away from it or you know, if I know any friends there, maybe and I thought that too, like how do how does their command know what this guy did, even though he wasn't charged, he wasn't um convicted of anything. But you have a potential predator in your midst, you know, in your command. Does the commanding officer know that? Does the chief's mess know that? Do, do their shipmates know any of this stuff? Or is it silent and this person gets to live their life and still get paid and wear a uniform and represent the service and have people work for him and be a supervisor all the while nobody's watching him anymore? Is that the case? I really don't know. I still don't know. And do they keep a secret file on people, and then as they transfer around, as a, you know, all that stuff was going through my head. And I know the Coast Guard well enough that I believe the answer is no. That once my case was over and they did their interviews, and maybe they spoke with my detailer, who's an assignment officer. You know, they are the ones that give you orders and are the ones that assign people based on the needs of the service. Maybe. Maybe they spoke to that person once and said, "Hey, just make sure you keep these guys separate for a few years," or you know, maybe that's the best I could hope for. But that feeling of guilt, you know, that that what I'd just gone through, what I my case had run dry, and there was no conviction, and there he was. Yeah, I could look him up in the system and see that he's still in and still potentially. Assaulting people or capable of assaulting people And that That just compounded everything for me Everything And I was in such a dark place I was at my lowest of low in my entire life Even when After the assault in 2004 And I just drank myself away I didn't know why I was Really depressed or why I was so sad now I knew, and now I had guilt and shame associated with that depression. And I went so far down in that that hole that I could not see light. I could not see a way out. And I think I mentioned in the previous episode about being suicidal. Um, I was. I was very suicidal. And I did not feel like I could say anything to medical, to any medical professional. I lied about it to my therapist, my civilian therapist, because I knew if I said anything to her that she might have to make a police report. And I knew if I said anything to the Coast Guard, of course they'd make reports and lock me, you know, not lock me away, but seek help and then start processing for discharge, most likely. And I'd lose my job. And the only thing that really kept me going was my son, who at that time was almost four years old and four or five, yeah, he's four years old, and he's the only thing that really kept me going. When I'd have those horrible thoughts about ending my life, he's the reason I didn't. I just wanted to be there for him. I didn't want him to miss out on me, even though I was worthless. I was trash. I was not any use to him at that point. He still loved me, and he helped me through That darkest period of my life and I'll always be grateful for that I'm grateful for him every day and I couldn't have done it without him but I continued like that for some time and I was going through a lot of therapy, sometimes several times a week and continued the medication and I mentioned the side effects I was having but I powered through just to calm myself down and it Was hard. It was very, very hard. And I can't remember exactly how long that continued. I say close to a year where I was just really, really struggling and crying myself to sleep. And I felt like I'm relying down in bed and I feel like I was sinking into the bed, like my body was just going to fall all the way through the bed into the floor. And that's how low I felt. But the opposite of that, the other side of that coin is I was able to continue my normal life at the same time. I was still working and I was still well-respected at my unit and I was training people and I was turning into like a experienced senior inspector with my job and all this stuff. So I was able to lose myself in that, which was a distraction I had done before. And I was comfortable with that. So even with the therapy and the medication, I still distracted myself to, so I wasn't facing it 24 seven. You know, I, I, I was good at that. And I'm almost, I am grateful for that. I am grateful for having the job I have. And especially at that time, I had a really good command. I had really good people around me. And I was able to flourish in that environment, despite how miserable I was inside. And I, I want to, if any of my shipmates from Houston are listening or have listened, I want to apologize. I'm sure sometimes I was in a hole or lost and maybe it showed maybe it didn't or maybe it came across in my temper sometimes and I apologize for that I never meant to ostracize anybody or you know uh, take it out on anybody I did my best not to and there are a few incidents incidents I remember of spacing out at work because of the medication and there were my my buddy he was a lieutenant and he was concerned one day and asked me if I had just had a shot for medical or so what was going on with me. And I just said, don't worry about it. I'm fine. But I was so zonked out on medication that <laughs> I couldn't focus on anything he was telling me. I forget what we've been talking about. So stuff like that would happen. But then I quickly just, you know, push it to the side and make a joke about something and continue with the job. So that's where I was for about a year. You know, I was really struggling inside and, I think that's where I'm going to leave this episode Is that initial fear shame, guilt the failure of the investigation knowing that it most likely wouldn't have gone anywhere but then having that realization after speaking with him with the guy who I know raped me and then realizing that it was over that there was going to be no justice and that was painful and sad And it just took my whole life away from me for a while. I couldn't believe where I was, and I didn't think I'd make it. So thank you all for listening. I know this is a hard episode, I'm sure, to listen. But it does get better, and I promise things get better. I'm in a good place. And I'll talk about how I got here. But I just want to give a quick plug. Thanks again to David Brown of Waver Blues for providing the theme music. Check him out on Spotify and his website and the links. And thank you once again, all, for listening. I really appreciate all the feedback I'm getting. Please provide more feedback, any questions or comments, resources. I'll gladly share them and talk about them. And a quick note as well. I'll be wrapping up the first season which is my story in the next couple of episodes and then when i create season two i I plan on making that more case studies driven data science and discussing those with some various people as well as just presenting my own thoughts on the subject so again thank you and as always take care of yourselves